Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. So this week we have some pretty embarrassing new law uh, from the EU, which might really, really hurt open source in general as they try to make sure that software is more secure, but they want to apply the same administrative burden to virtually every single developer, including open source developers. We also have a slew of repairable laptops, including, well, a slew, two repairable laptops, including the Framework Laptop 16, now available for pre-orders, and a new project from Lenovo. And we also have the GIMP finally finishing up their GTK3 transition. Uh, we also have the first pieces for an open source NVIDIA driver landing in Mesa, and a lot more. So, as always, all the links I use to make this podcast are in the show notes, and as always, if you want to support the show, all the links are in the show notes as well. So let's begin with the European Union. And the European Union sometimes does really cool stuff, uh, like when they're trying to regulate how big tech can collect data, what they can do about it, where they can send that data. When they do this kind of stuff, they're pretty awesome. And yeah, sure, the laws aren't the best written in the world. They're not very precise. They leave a lot of room to interpretation, which results in dark patterns being implemented everywhere, what we're seeing with the GDPR, basically. But the intention is good. In this one, they also have good intentions, but the execution is absolutely bungled. Uh, it's a new set of regulations that is called the Cyber Resilience Act. And it's designed to make software more secure. Uh, either software that is going to be used by other companies, software that companies sell to customers, uh, whether they're individuals or, or other companies, if it's B2B or B2C, it doesn't matter. What they want is that software has a good set of good practices that it's certified as secure and certified as conforming to what the EU expects from software. It's on paper a pretty good thing. Uh, yeah, it's going to make software more secure and it's going to ensure that developers can do just haphazard, half-assed kind of development that we've seen in the past with plenty of security flaws that they ignore, that they don't report, uh, that they hide from users, uh, that generate like data breaches or leaks or whatever. It's not a bad thing. Basically, to be certified, you have to follow a process. You have to follow a set of good practices, uh, for example, just writing complete technical documentation, and follow a specific process for bug triage, how you handle bugs, how you fix your security issues, and stuff like that. And basically, most software developers will be able to have a relatively smooth certification process from what we can see from the, from the new set of laws, which just means that they can basically sign a certificate saying, yes, I do comply with all these processes. And if they get an audit one day and they don't, then they'll get a fine. And if they do follow those practices, then it's all good. And for more important software, stuff like firewalls or really security-related stuff, there will be an audit by a regulated body which will be necessary for the piece of software to be certified. So, not terrible, more administrative burden on companies, but it's for a good cause to ensure that customers, whether they're companies or individuals, don't get screwed over by badly written and insecure software. It's not bad. But it's going to have an enormous impact on open source. Because this new Cyber Resilience Act completely misses the mark on how open source works. Basically, it's going to subject pretty much every single open source project to the same set of regulations, 
whatever its scope, however many developers it has or many, how many users it has, they don't care. Virtually all open source projects will be treated as if they were commercial proprietary code. There are no adjustments or provisions made for open source projects at all. You either conform to the entire set of regulations or you're not certified. The only exception is if the project has a fully decentralized development model with only volunteers that have no other job than working on that specific project. As long as one of your contributors is an employee of any company at all, any at all, even if it's not related to the project, even if it's not even a software company, then your project will be considered a commercial project because you've got one person working, for example, at an airline. That's the example the Apache Foundation gives. Uh, you have an airline pilot that is also contributing some free and open source code in its spare time. But since this guy is hired as a day job by a company, then the project is a commercial project. That's how they see it, which is insane because it completely misunderstands how open source software works. If you wanted to regulate something maybe like Fedora because, or, or even the Linux kernel, because a lot of contributors are from companies. And so you should expect some amount of responsibility that goes with the legitimacy that the project has because a lot of its contributions are corporate contributions. Uh, basically, they're trying to not let projects have their cake and eat it too. You can't just say, yes, like 90% of our contributions are made by companies, by employees paid specifically for these contributions, but we're an open source project and so there's no guarantee of responsibility. I understand why they would want to interact with that or maybe stop this kind of behavior. I personally don't think it needs to be stopped. It, it has worked really, really well for open source projects forever. Uh, but where they're missing it is that if your company has nothing to do with the project and they're not paying you to contribute to the project, then you're not a commercial contributor. The project is not commercial. It's being contributed to by people who are doing this in, on their spare time as volunteer work. So it shouldn't be treated as a commercial project and it should have more leeway uh, regarding how, it's, how it can operate and if it needs to be certified or not. So basically all open source projects that are subject to these laws will have to take a heavy costly burden of certification and of audits. Or they will have to boot any contributor that isn't an unpaid volunteer that has basically no other job on the side. They would also have to refuse any donation from a commercial entity. Because if you receive a donation from a company, then your project is classified as commercial as well. And on top of that, some of the obligations that this new Cyber Resilience Act imposes are pretty much impossible to fulfill. There's the obligation to deliver a project without any known exploitable vulnerabilities. This is not possible because you have no idea where your open source code will be implemented. You don't know. Or even when you implement a, a, an open source project inside of your code, you might not be aware of some vulnerabilities that haven't yet been disclosed. So you don't know. So it's just not doable. You can't ever ship a project without any exploitable vulnerabilities. They're supposed to be known. Let's expect, let's suppose that what they want is that the developers don't ship a project which they know is flawed, is flawed and has a big problem in it. Of course, you shouldn't ship that. But the way it's written leaves a lot of room for interpretation. It's not well written, like mostly every tech-related EU law. And to top it off, as with most EU written laws on tech, 
it calls to a bunch of to-be-defined standards which will have to be followed by the projects, probably in terms of how they triage bugs, how they handle contributions, uh, how much, how, how basically how they filter contributions from people, what they accept, what they refuse. But these standards will be written by a bunch of organizations that sometimes don't even allow open source organizations to be members. So these standards have basically every chance of being written by people who are not in the open source community and so will make no provisions for open source either. And it's not just like, oh, if you're not certified, then I guess your code can be used by companies. Entities that are subject to this act and don't conform to the regulation could face fines up to 15 million euros, which is completely insane. So basically, if this thing is voted as is, it should have been voted at the end of the week, but I haven't seen anything on the result of the vote just yet. So I don't know if it's been voted or not. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, uh, we'll know the results. But if this thing is voted on as is without any modifications, it could virtually spell the doom of open source projects started in the EU and of the use of open source code by EU companies, which would be an absolute disaster for the EU and for the open source community. For the EU, because, well, open source code is the back, it's the backbone of the web, of basically every single piece of software developed today. Whether it's what's running your server, whether it's the code you use in your own project, a lot of stuff is just open source code that people just reuse, which is great. It's what it's supposed to be. And the responsibility of ensuring that this code works for you and is safe is on you as the person who implements it, not on the software developer, which provides this code with a free and open source license, which has no guarantee of responsibility. They don't take responsibility for that code and what you do with it, which is the basis of open source. So disaster for the EU and disaster for the open source community at large, because who would risk writing an open source project if it means that, yeah, you you will need to spend about 30% more budget to get that certification and spend 30% more time uh, to triage bugs, fix issues, and do security audits that will also probably cost you money just so your code can be made available or reused by other companies. Like, what? No one is going to start doing any code work if these are the pressures that you're under. So yeah, absolute nightmare. I really, truly hope that this thing gets modified before it's voted on because it could be an absolute nightmare. Okay, now let's move on to more funny and cool (laughs) and less scary topics uh, with the Framework Laptop. So you probably already know about this project. You might be wondering why I'm talking about it here. Uh, That's because the Framework project is very close to the ideals of open source and free software. They're laptops that you completely control. You can disassemble them, you can upgrade them, you can replace the parts yourself. They're designed to be repairable. The ethics are really close to what the open source and free software movements are. Uh, Basically, it's just you have more control over what you use and you can make of it whatever you want uh, by modifying it if you prefer. So that's why I'm talking about it here. And so the framework laptop only had a 13-inch model, but the 16-inch can now be pre-ordered from Framework's website. And it is a pretty special laptop because the 13-inch was just a productivity device. So it was your Ultrabook, your MacBook Air replacement, uh, not much graphical power, standard battery life, relatively small. 13-inch is is good for a lot of people, but for me personally, I prefer 16 or 15. So yeah, it it wasn't a model that could suit everyone's needs. And so their 16-inch model fills that 
that bigger device gap and is probably more a performance machine because it has a removable GPU module that you can slot in when you need more horsepower. But on top of those removable GPU modules, which we'll talk about more in a few seconds, uh, it will also let you completely change how the keyboard works. Uh, you can move it to the side or center it. You can add spacers on each side or you can add a numpad or you can even customize these spacers to be like RGB or colored panels or whatever. Uh, you can put the touchpad on the left or on the right. You can easily swap these modules around to make it your own. And same goes for the trackpad. You can also put the trackpad on the left, on the right, in the middle, slightly offset with various panels that you can slot uh, to fill in the gaps, which is really cool because you could even have a non-numpad laptop with a center touchpad. And when you actually need to do some number input work or you need to, to calculate stuff or, or do some crunch some numbers, you could just slot in your numpad and keep using your laptop and you remove it when you don't need it when you need to type and you want to have your hands centered on the laptop. It's really cool. It's really modular. And it keeps all the repairability and modularity of the 13-inch model as well. And as per the GPU modules, uh, by default, you don't get it with the laptop. You have to pay an extra, I think it's 400 uh, euros to get it, which is not insignificant. And it's a Radeon uh, RX 7700S. No, it's 450 euros. It's a Radeon RX 7700S, which is pretty good uh, for any graphical intensive task, probably for gaming as well. And they say that in the future, they will have more modules with different vendors, more performance or less performance or whatever. They're just starting with this one. And if you don't want that, by default, you just have a cooling module that has some cooling for your laptop. And of course, the GPU module also includes some cooling. Uh, and they also say that they want to have other types of modules that you could slot in here, like, for example, more battery, more stuff like that. But we'll have to see uh, if they actually deliver on that. It also retains all the uh, modules that you can use to change the I.O., to change the ports on your laptop. Uh, it looks compatible with all the modules for the Framework 13 as well. And it's not that costly if you're willing to build it yourself. Uh, it starts at around 1600 euros for the DIY, which you will have to assemble yourself. And it starts at a little bit less than 2000 euros if you want it pre-built, which is, it's not cheap, uh, especially since the 2000 euros version doesn't have uh, the uh, GPU module. So if you want your laptop with a GPU, it's going to be more around 2400 euros, which, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money. But it comes with pretty powerful Ryzen 7 CPUs. Uh, at least 16 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of storage, which is really nice. And of course, it comes with Windows pre-installed. But Framework has good Linux support, at least on the Framework 13. I think they support it officially. They just don't sell it with any distro pre-installed. Uh, so I would be surprised if the 16-inch wasn't in the same ballpark. It took a little bit of time from for Framework to actually have good support for Linux but maybe with the 16-inch it will be there out of the box. So it looks like a great concept, and if Framework can manage to really keep that ecosystem of GPU modules or, or alternative modules that you can use in the same slot, if they can manage to keep that ecosystem alive and really support this device, it might become one of the coolest choices for a laptop. So I reached out to them to see if I could get a review unit. I'm not expecting them to answer. They didn't do it uh, for the 13-inch, so probably not for the 16 either. But we'll see uh, what they have to say about that. My channel has grown since then, so maybe they'll see me as a, a reasonable option to, to try and talk about their devices. We'll have to see. 
But the framework laptop will not be alone on the market for long uh, in terms of uh, repairable devices because Lenovo has apparently a similar project in the works. It's called the Aurora project and it's basically a laptop that can be disassembled entirely without using a screwdriver at all. Uh, the keyboard plate would be removable without any screws, the battery would be modular and replaceable, all the components upgradable, basically like the framework laptop, but even easier to disassemble. Now, compared to the framework laptop, this is just a prototype. Framework actually has shipping devices, devices that they ship. Uh, Aurora project is just that. It's a project on a page. They are looking at it, they're studying it, but they don't have anything ready just yet. But it would be a huge step to have such a big manufacturer and relatively well-regarded, uh, Lenovo is kind of liked uh, by a lot of Linux enthusiasts, for example, and is generally considered like the business laptop. The ThinkPads are the business laptops. So it's interesting to have such a big manufacturer taking right to repair seriously and giving consumers more options to repair because Framework proved that you don't have to compromise uh, the laptop, the thinness, the weight, the quality, just for the sake of repairability. Now, this was the argument many people advanced uh, in the past, saying, yeah, but you couldn't achieve something that thin or that light or that powerful if it was repairable and if you could upgrade the component. This is just not true. Framework proved it. Y you can be upgradable, repairable, and, and openable, and you can interact with your device in every way, even if even while keeping the thinness, the power, the, 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 the weight, everything. So it's great to see more big manufacturers taking interest in that, especially since this laptop would be a ThinkPad, uh, which would please a lot of Linux users, I think. And they're also basing this design on a bit of research. They basically found that most people don't care about repairing their devices themselves. Only 20% of consumers would like to have a do-it-yourself option for repairs, but it's still a fifth of the market. So if, if it's a market of multiple millions of devices each year, then it could be interesting to have something to address this market. And they're also looking at which components need to be repaired the most, probably the keyboard and the battery, and the ones that should easily be accessible uh, when designing this laptop, probably the RAM and the SSD. And it sounds like a good way to approach things. And they're also looking at ways uh, that, that you could use the parts that you don't use anymore uh, on your device. For example, if you replace the motherboard or the display, uh, they're looking at ways you could use the spare parts uh, and repurpose them in other devices. Uh, they, they take the example of reusing uh, an unused laptop display into a smart screen, for example. So I think it's cool to see that the framework uh, project is making other manufacturers look into the fact that, yes, maybe there's a market for this, and maybe we should also start designing some of our products along these same lines. It's good for the environment to not generate as much e-waste. It's good for consumers to be able to repair and upgrade their devices. And it's probably going to be good for manufacturers because in pure corporate fashion, they could basically just sell you a subscription service, which would get you the new motherboard each year, more RAM each year, a newer SSD each year, or the latest parts. You could just have your laptop as a service where you just pay a subscription each month and they send you the upgrade parts and you can upgrade it yourself. I'm pretty sure a company will start doing that at some point. It's just the ideal corporate business. Keep someone paying over and over instead of buying one device from you every five years and maybe switching gears and buying something from someone else. 
uh, probably your company will do that at some point. I'm not saying that's good uh, because that's going to lock you into an ecosystem or a specific company, but I'm pretty sure they'll do it. Now let's talk about NVIDIA drivers and there are some good news as the first part of the open source drivers for the latest RTX GPUs have now landed in Mesa. There are a lot of caveats around that. It's not the full driver that will give you the same performance as the NVIDIA proprietary driver. It doesn't support every NVIDIA GPU. For now it's just for the RTX 40 series and they will need an update to the Nuvo DRM kernel drivers to perform correctly. So these new drivers seem to be plugging in into Nuvo uh, for the interface with the kernel, but what they're bringing is either the OpenGL or the Vulkan drivers on top of that to have a fully open source stack. So these new drivers that land in Mesa only support OpenGL for now. They don't support Vulkan, so it's not a complete implementation but it is still a huge first step for fully open source drivers for NVIDIA GPUs. And so basically we have three efforts in terms of drivers, from what I understand. We have the Nuvo drivers, which are both kernel drivers and user space drivers, but the user space is not great. It doesn't really run that well. It doesn't give you much performance because it can't access uh, basically the clock speed of the GPU. So it can't use all the power of the GPU. It doesn't work all that well but it does provide an interface uh, for the GPU to be used by the kernel. Then we have these open source drivers for OpenGL, which just landed in Mesa, and we'll use the Nuvo kernel drivers to talk to the kernel. And we have the NVK project, which is basically the Vulkan drivers, the open source Vulkan drivers for NVIDIA GPUs. So these three projects will basically make a complete stack that will run basically everything on NVIDIA GPUs with open source code. So that's really cool. Uh, I would imagine both these projects will work together to support those two graphics APIs, which are virtually anything, everything uh, that we need to support on Linux, OpenGL and Vulkan. We don't support anything else. So it might look like a relatively small step because it's still not a usable driver. You, you can't rely on that to run your computer. You can't rely on that to play any games or whatever. But it's just the beginning for a fully open source NVIDIA graphics stack, which I personally cannot wait for. Because I often say I don't have any issues with the NVIDIA drivers and the proprietary ones. And that's true. But I would also much prefer uh, that anyone, whatever the GPU they have, could just pick a distro, install it. They don't have a third party module to install, which can be tricky depending on the distro you picked. They don't have to have proprietary code running. They have full compatibility with the latest Linux stack because if it's in Mesa, it's probably going to support everything needed for Wayland, for video decoding, for hardware video decoding on web browsers and stuff like that. It's just going to be better. It's going to move faster. We're not going to be beholden to Nvidia to implement stuff when we want to move forwards. It's just a better situation to be in. Because while Nvidia has shown that yes, they are willing to start working with the standards the Linux community is now using, especially on Wayland, they're still taking their sweet time with it. And I'm pretty sure that if these drivers were open source and people were working on them uh, as a hobby or to just basically, or maybe paid by various companies uh, to improve them, then it would move way faster. 
And if in five years we have a new graphical standard that we need to support, we won't have to wait for NVIDIA to decide to implement it or to offer an alternative solution that we basically will have to implement everywhere else because if not, it means that NVIDIA GPUs are not an option anymore on Linux. It's not a good situation to be dependent on a company uh, for your drivers, even if, especially if they are proprietary and you can't contribute anything to them. So I can't wait for a fully open source NVIDIA stack I think we're still a few years away from that, honestly, especially if we consider that, okay, sure, everything's working, but does it have good performance? This will take a lot of time uh, before it's ready. But yeah, it's still something that we can look forward to, which wasn't at all a thing a few years ago. There was basically no way we were going to have good NVIDIA open source drivers. Uh, and now basically there is a way. It's just a long ways away. Now, I happened upon an interesting article from The Register uh, about Wayland, and they basically just listed a bunch of signs that Wayland is definitely the future of the Linux graphical desktop, and that basically everybody is working on it or moving to it. Uh, they, they have a bunch of stuff. Uh, the major ones, obviously, are Plasma 6, uh, saying that, yes, we will still support X11, but our default will be Wayland, and our strong recommendation to distros will be use Wayland, not X11, if you want to uh, ship Plasma 6. There's also plans for GTK5 to possibly drop X11 support entirely, which would mean that GNOME, uh, when it's based on GTK5 and their apps are based on GTK5, will just not work with X11 at all uh, if that proposal is implemented. There's also the fact that the Azahi team uh, working on porting Linux to the Apple Silicon platform are also saying that they will never support X11 because they can't work on it, they don't have the manpower and supporting it right now would make no sense because it's basically abandonware at that point. So they will only support Wayland, which means that for the foreseeable future, there will only be a Wayland version of Linux, well, Linux using Wayland, running on any future Mac, because I don't see any other distro wanting to put in the work either, uh, once the fixes that Azahi made to the kernel are widely available to every other distro. We also know that the Budgie desktop environment will drop X11 support in Budgie 11, it's still a few years away, but they clearly stated that X11 will die uh, on Budgie after Budgie 10, and even elementary OS has a first version with Wayland support in early access. It's apparently very buggy. I didn't have time to try it out just yet, uh, but I think it's interesting because Budgie and elementary OS aren't exactly the fastest moving desktops on Linux. Uh, they're generally pretty slow to implement new stuff. And even they are absolutely focused on trying to bring Wayland to their users because they just recognize that it's the path forward. Uh, Ubuntu and Fedora all use Wayland by default, and even OpenBSD is working on implementing Wayland support. Uh, the results of these developments are already available as part of FreeBSD. So basically what they're saying is that all the major and credible Linux desktop projects are working on either improving Wayland, on implementing support if they haven't started already, or planning to drop X11 altogether. So I don't think there's any doubt left. X11's days are numbered. And it's not necessarily because Wayland offers so much more than X11. 
the argument that I often see is that why should I switch to Wayland when it doesn't work as well for me as X11 does and it does less things? And I agree. Wayland, for some people, is not going to work. But you're also not really going to have a choice unless you want to stick to an older distro that never wants to move away from Wayland and to older desktop environments uh, that never want to move away from X11. The fact is, no one wants to work on X11 to implement new stuff because it's very old, it's a bunch of spaghetti code, no one really understands it all that well, and so only security fixes are added. And for toolkits and desktops, supporting X11 is just basically wasted time uh, for, for your next version. Because it's basically just repeating the same work that already exists. You're not going to be, you're going to be limited basically with what you can do. For example, implementing touchpad or touchscreen gestures. Why is the Linux stack so backwards and so late on touchscreens and touchpad gestures? It's because X11. X11 does not allow for smooth touchscreen interactions, multi-touch, stuff like that. It had to be hacked on top of it, running around all the, the workings and all the principles that X11 is based upon. Wayland is meant for this stuff. Uh, why can't you have different refresh rates and, and different scaling factors between monitors on X11? Because it was never intended for this and it just cannot support it. Well, Wayland has been designed for that. So it's not necessarily that we're moving away from X11 because, oh, X11 is so bad and Wayland is so much better. It's because X11 cannot evolve to support the computing needs of today. It cannot support fractional scaling properly. It cannot support different fractional scaling. It cannot support HDR. There's a lot of stuff it just cannot do. So why waste your time trying to retrofit it on top of X11 when you can just have that new protocol that is designed for the modern Linux world? That's why distros and projects are adopting it. And I think it's an interesting fact to take into consideration. It's not to annoy people or to reinvent the wheel. It's because X11 basically blocks us to move forward to have the same feature set that users expect. And so, yeah, X11 will die in a few years. There's no doubt about it. Or at least it will be reserved to a very niche variety of Linux distros aimed to run on older computers or for people who really need one or two features that X11 has and that Wayland doesn't have. Like, for example, network transparency and the client-server model. And speaking about porting efforts, uh, the GIMP's efforts to port uh, their program to GTK3 are now coming to a close. And yes, it's GTK3, not GTK4. Uh, they started this porting process before GTK4 was even introduced, and they're just finishing it now. They don't have that many developers. Uh, so the dev team says that the port is officially done, there's a new development release if you want to test things out, but it's not just moving to a newer version of GTK, it's also bringing a bunch of improvements. Uh, first, you can now use GIMP with client-side decorations, if you prefer, which basically means a header bar. Uh, but it's not really a header bar as you might be used to. It's basically just the menu bar implemented inside of the title bar. Uh, since you're going to use your GIMP windows generally on a large screen because you need some space to design your stuff, I think there's enough room to accommodate the whole menu. It will, it will save space, basically. It's just optional. Of course, no one's forced to use that. And GIMP also gained the ability to hide the on-canvas text editor toolbox, so you can preview your work more easily without that little window floating above it. Uh, the new filters and plugins that people develop can now slot themselves in the menus more easily. The dark theme has been tweaked to be a bit less dark and more legible. 
The color picker can now display things in grayscale and you can now import and export Photoshop files that use clipping paths. And also when importing PSDs, if GIMP doesn't support certain features that are used in the document, it will now tell you that these features are not compatible yet and might be lost in the import. Which is pretty cool, because it means if you import a simple PSD, you won't get any warnings and you know it's backwards compatible with Photoshop. Well, it's compatible with Photoshop, not backwards compatible. And if you import a very advanced document, then it's going to tell you, hey, you know what, this layer thing is not supported, this specific uh, feature is not supported either, uh, this adjustment layer or whatever. Uh, so yeah, you're going to lose that if you import into GIMP. And so at least you're not trying to, to understand where your work has gone. It just doesn't support it. There are also plenty of changes to how file formats are supported. New file formats are added as well. Uh, and the final release, uh, when they finally have a stable release for this, uh, will also have an API for plugins. So developers can extend the capabilities of GIMP more easily. And I personally use GIMP for all my thumbnails. They're not works of art, they're pretty simple, but I really enjoy the workflow of GIMP. I've never used Photoshop in my life, and so I don't find GIMP confusing at all. It's really actually very easy to use and very fast. And I'm really glad to see a major update coming to it soon, but I guess that after that, they're gonna have to start working on the port to GTK4, which will probably also take them seven or eight years, who knows? Uh, I don't know if they're gonna want to start that right away though. Now let's move on to privacy related matters. It looks like Meta is going to be fined 100,000 euros per day by Norway until it fixes the various privacy issues that its apps have. Uh, these fines will start on August the 4th and are related to how Meta tracks Facebook and Instagram users. Uh, Meta has made some changes to how they collect and store data, uh, reacting to some EU regulation, but Norway feels that they basically just skirted around the law and tried to implement it in the least private way possible. Uh, Norway feels that these changes do not comply with EU regulations uh, because they're Meta is basically still choosing which ads to display to their users without letting them know how the ad was picked, why the ad was picked, what data was used to display this ad and why. And so this, they say that this affects freedom of information and expression. It can reinforce stereotypes, it can lead to discrimination, and they specifically point out to behavioral targeting during elections, which is basically you visited this page, this page, and this page, uh, so we're, we know you're from this political uh, side and you're sensible to these issues. So we're going to show you an ad for the person you wouldn't have voted for that tackles these issues. So maybe you're going to be more likely to vote for them. Uh, so obviously it's a big political maneuvering tool and it needs to be regulated. Uh, Norway calls this a ban for some reason, but they're not banning the apps or they're not banning the ads either. Uh, they're basically just noting how long it takes Meta to fix the problems, and they will find them 100,000 euros per day until it's fixed. Uh, or until October, uh, if like they fix it before that. This would make it about 3 million euros per month, which is not a lot for Meta, but it might be enough for them to stop tiptoeing around regulations and actually comply with the spirit of the law. From where I stand, it feels like Meta will in the future just not be able to operate using behavioral data in the future in the EU at all. Uh, like the data a user willingly inputs is fine, like I'm giving you my name, my address, my phone number, sure, use that, I gave it up willingly, just tell me that you collect it. Uh, but 
everything collected in the background, like what you visited, how much time you spent on this, uh, the contents of your posts and stuff like that. This is slowly becoming a big no-no in the EU, and I would be surprised if this didn't either blow blew up uh, Meta's business model in the EU entirely, because basically they could not target you a lot, they could not target you at all, uh, or maybe we just blow up the availability of Meta in the EU. Maybe we, they would just say, you know what, with all these regulations, it's just not worth it to stay operating in the EU. And I personally would not be unhappy about this. Uh, if Facebook, Instagram, and Messenger, and Threads, and whatever else disappeared uh, from the EU, I would not be very sad. <laughs> it would force my friends to move away from Facebook Messenger, uh, to some, or, or even WhatsApp, uh, to something more privacy-respecting, and not developed by a giant corp. I would not be opposed to it. So yeah, sure, uh, keep finding them until they leave. Uh, I would be very happy about this. And still talking about Meta, it looks like their latest data collection vessel isn't really working out. Uh, Threads, which is their Twitter competitor, it does about half of what Twitter does, but it grew very, very fast to 49 million users. Uh, but after a week, this number of its active daily users, not number of signups or accounts created, apparently they have around 100 million accounts created, uh, but they had 49 million daily active users. And after a week, that number was slashed by two with 23 or around 24 million daily active users. And you might be thinking, well, that's normal. Some people just created an account to see how it worked. They dropped out because it doesn't offer much more than what they're used to. But no, that's not a good argument. You're a new service. Well, Threads is a new service launched by a giant corporation uh, which has a lot of budget behind it, and uh, they should grow. Uh, <laughs> the number of new users that are added to the platform should offset and surpass the number of people who leave. If half of the people who tried your app in the first week already left, then your app isn't good. Uh, what you're offering isn't enough. It's not working. A huge service launched by a huge corporation like Meta should not lose subscribers in the first, uh, well, should not lose daily active users in, in the first weeks after its launch. Now, still, in a very short period of time, Threads gained about 22% of Twitter's audience in terms of, if we compare daily active users, they have 22% of what Twitter has. And it's a big threat for the Bluebird. Uh, and it's way more of a threat than what Mastodon achieves currently, unfortunately, at 3.6 million daily active users. Uh, so we basically have uh, about one-sixth or one-seventh uh, of the daily active users than Threads already has. The engagement on Threads also went down a lot. Uh, when people started using it, they stayed on the app around 21 minutes per day. Now it's six minutes per day, which means people spend very, very little time on that application compared to even Twitter, where people spend 25 minutes on average. Now, of course... Threads hasn't been rolled out worldwide. For example, it's not available in the EU at all, which is about 500 million more potential users, which is not small. Uh, but maybe they will never make it available there because the reason it's not there yet is because they don't support our GDPR. Basically, the app doesn't comply with GDPR, which should tell you everything that you need to know about this app. If you don't live in the EU, don't use it because it's not available in the EU because it's a privacy nightmare. So don't use it even if you're not in the EU. Don't try to access it with a VPN. It sucks. 
I seriously hope this thing crashes and burns. I don't think Meta joining the Fediverse through ActivityPub will be a nightmare or will kill everything. I think the worst case scenario is that Meta tried to join the Fediverse through ActivityPub. Everybody defederates everything they do. And so we basically have the same situation as now. We have Meta with their Threads app and we have the Fediverse on its own realm, still using ActivityPub and everything is fine. Uh, but I still think that social media should not be controlled by giant corporations that collect user data. And so I really truly hope that Threads dies, that Twitter keeps dying, that Facebook keeps dying, and that we're left with just the Fediverse, a nice, like, cool place that you can tailor to your needs, self-host if you want, talk to everyone on any service, not controlled by a single company. That's what the web should be. So I hope Threads just doesn't work out. That would make me pretty happy. Okay, time to wrap this episode up with the gaming news. Uh, so this week we have a new stable version of the proprietary NVIDIA drivers for Linux. Uh, it's mainly bug fixes. It should fix Wayland problems with external monitors, various bugs with Vulkan fullscreen applications. It should fix some kernel panics and some flickering on variable refresh rate monitors. It's a small update, but definitely do apply it when your distro offers it because uh, it's going to make your experience better and the experience on Wayland better as well. Next, we have a new beta of the Steam desktop client uh, with a cool new feature. Uh, you can now see Steam Deck compatibility information in your library. Uh, so you can go into the settings, turn this option on, and then when you hover over a game or in the games page, when you click on the game, you will see uh, the Steam Deck compatibility rating. Uh, either as a small icon over the image of the game or in the little info pop-up that appears if you click on the little eye thing uh, in, a, in the game's page. Now, unfortunately, the info doesn't show up where it's most important, which is in the store on the desktop client, uh, because that's where it would be useful. It would let you know if when you're buying a game on your main PC, it would also run on your Steam Deck, uh, that would be nice because, well, you know that you can pick this game up and also play it on the go and resume where you're left off. Uh, I think it's where it's needed. Like on the game page, you bought it. You, you know that it's running on the Steam Deck. You, 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 you either don't care because you're not running this game on the Steam Deck if you're using the desktop client or you know because you bought it specifically because it ran on the Steam Deck. So where it's useful is actually in the store where you don't yet know. Uh, even in the desktop client. So I hope they add that in the future. And we also have some good news for Intel uh, users on Linux. Uh, Intel Arc users specifically to start, but also Intel integrated graphics users. For Intel Arc users, uh, the Linux drivers will now enjoy around 10% more speed in the next release of Mesa. They enable something called IL3 partial write merging, which I figure has something to do with L3 cache on the GPU, but I don't really know what this is or what it does. They noted an 11% improvement in CSGO in terms of frames per second and 5.5% in Shadow of the Tomb Raider. And the patch will probably also be backported to the current stable version of Mesa 23.1 for distros that don't get regular driver updates. Uh, it, it was planned to be in Mesa 23.2, basically. And Foronix benchmarked a bunch of titles, and they confirmed that the average performance improvements on most games is about 10%. Uh, so 10% more FPS, it, it can push you into 60 FPS territory if you didn't reach that, or push you into 120 territory if you were at like 100 FPS. 
it's really good. Uh, it's really good. So yeah, I don't know how many people use an Intel Arc GPU on Linux. I personally always felt it might be a good choice because the problems people pointed out with these GPUs were on Windows and they were because there's basically no good support for older DirectX versions that are not DirectX 12. But on Linux, we don't care because we don't use DirectX 9, 10 or 11. We use Vulkan, which is the API the GPU actually interacts with. Uh, all the DirectX stuff is translated on the fly through DXVK. So probably an Arc GPU makes sense on Linux. And maybe I will have to buy one of these cards at some point just to benchmark it, compare it with Windows and see if like the performance on Linux is actually much better than on Windows for older games. Um, maybe I'll make a video out of this uh, if I can get my hands on one of these cards. But that's not all uh, for people who don't have an Arc GPU but have an integrated Intel GPU, which might be a lot of you. There's also a patch coming that will provide a different FPS boost, uh, small in a lot of games, around 1-2%, to but pretty huge in a handful of other titles. Uh, they took Strange Brigade as an example. Uh, they will, this game will gain about 10% more FPS. Some other games are at 1%, some are at 5%, but generally it's an improvement across the board uh, with just better performance with integrated graphics, which is always cool. And so with this, uh, this podcast comes to an end. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you have any questions or remarks, you can leave them on the website at podcast.thelinuxexp.com. And if you want to learn more about one of these topics, I have links in the show notes for every article that I used. And if you want to support the show because you like it and you want it to continue, there are also plenty of links in the show notes to help you do just that. So thanks for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!